Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Join us as we hurdle adversity with an inspirational Paralympian, hit the road in search of California's history, and head to the front lines in the global fight against human trafficking. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints today, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and today we're going to travel the world vicariously with some intriguing guests and put the spotlight on the issue of human trafficking with an advocate from the U.K. Thanks, dear. Imagine being at the top of your sport as an all-American hurdler on the verge of qualifying for the U.S. Olympic team, only to suffer a devastating injury that would lead to the loss of your leg. John Register overcame that devastating loss to compete as a Paralympian in two sports. John shares his life-altering and inspiring story of hurdling adversity. It's amazing how life will, will, will sometimes change and challenge us in ways that we never thought we would be challenged before. Uh, when I lost my leg, I was really on top of the world. I was moving forward. I was I was just going to be on this, uh, the Olympic team. I had a great shot at it. You know, I was ranked about number nine, eight or nine in the country. Professor Victor Silverman's experiences have taken him into the worlds of history, politics, theater, writing, and film. With that experience and as the chair of the history department at Pomona College in California, Professor Silverman is uniquely qualified to tell the history of the Golden State, which he does in California, On the Road Histories, part of that namesake series of travel histories. And so I started doing research on California. I produced a film about San Francisco. I started writing things. And then I said, you know what, it's time for me to really get into it and uh, follow these stories that I knew little bits about. As World Footprints continues its reporting in human trafficking, we'll introduce you to Stop the Traffic, a UK-based organization that is on the front lines in fighting the global war against human trafficking. Stop the Traffic's CEO, Ruth Durnley, joins us to talk about the strategies her organization is using to fight human trafficking. We are all about taking local action, building a global movement, and uh, taking part, driving campaigns for change. That's who we are. We are about grassroots. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Imagine being on the path of qualifying for the 1996 U.S. Olympic track and field team as a hurdler after being a three-time All-American at the University of Arkansas to suffering a devastating injury resulting in the loss of your leg. Through faith and family, John Register overcame that devastating loss, first to compete as a Paralympic swimmer in the 1996 Atlanta Games, and then went on to win a silver medal as a long jumper in the 2000 Paralympic Games in Sydney, Australia. John's story of hurdling adversity is one he shares with audiences all over as a motivational speaker, and he joins us today to share his inspiring story. John, welcome. Hey, thank you. I'm so honored to be on your show today. Now, you are the Associate Director of the U.S. Olympic Committee in the Paralympic Division, but before we talk about the committee and the upcoming Games in London, take us back to the start of your incredible journey as an athlete. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, you know, it's, it's amazing how life will, will, will sometimes change and challenge us in ways that we never thought we would be challenged before. 
uh, when I lost my leg, I was really on top of the world. I was moving forward. I was I was just going to be on this uh, the Olympic team. I had a great shot at it. You know, I was ranked about number nine, eight or nine in the country, uh, the top 40 in the world, and then devastation happens. And so what do you do during that time? What I had to do was, was really rediscover who I was and the things that I thought I'd lost, I really hadn't lost. But I, I needed to walk through this path. And so through faith, through family, through friendships, it equaled my liberation, my freedom to get me back on, on track after, after losing the limb. But it was really sport that, that allowed me to come back and get to a place to where I once thought I, I, I'd lost. And, and that really launched me into so many other areas in my life because it gave me the confidence again. It gave me the, the, the self-desire, the drive to move forward and press towards a goal. So that's, I think, is, is really the, the crust of, of how I, I moved through that uh, difficult situation. Now, John, you started off as, as, as a kid growing up in the Chicago area doing all of the, the sports, baseball, football, swimming, all of that, and then you found your way really at, at the high level as an NCAA collegian, and then all of a sudden you have this injury. How did you make that transition from really being an able-bodied athlete at the top of his game to then becoming a Paralympian in a different venue as, as a differently abled person. How did that happen for you? Well, I, I, I had a, a therapist who, who taught me or showed me that, uh, you know, just, just start swimming for physical therapy. And I began doing that. And I think that the, the, the overall arching thing was people that were around me, I, I tend to surround myself with people who are just gonna, are going to be positive and not, and not drag me down, which means I can help other people as, as well. And so I had a lot of people in my life that were not going to allow me to fail. Uh, and so the swimming began to, just to be this recreational thing I did at the local parks and rec, and, and then with Lees, um, uh, Leesburg, Virginia, or somewhere around there that I began swimming recreationally. And somebody told me about the Paralympic Games. Uh, this was a parallel track. I'd never heard of it before for athletes with physical disabilities and visual impairments uh, for the most part, and they were competing on the world stage. But I really didn't understand this world. And as you said, you know, being a three-time All-American at Arkansas, it really was um, something that was unique and, and different, and I didn't, I didn't quite get it. And quite honestly, you know, I, I thought that, you know, me as this, this athlete, when, I'm, when I was sitting in a gate area waiting for a flight to board for the, uh, the Paralympic swim team was going down and the track and field team and the basketball team were going down to compete in a test event, in Atlanta, Georgia, I was sitting in the gate waiting area, and I was looking around me. I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not a part of these athletes. And I began to put myself above, you know, who they were uh, as individuals, as people. And it was really a, a, a thing I'd, I'd never had quite experienced before of this, this, uh, this elevation of, of, of self. And, and in that moment, I began to, to think, you know, you know what, must, what goes up must come down. And, and so as, as my thoughts were going up, the, the gate agent, she said, you know, the flight was about to board from Dulles to Atlanta for these test events. And my change of thought first came when she said that. She said, well, everybody that needs a little bit more time and assistance, please get up and board the aircraft at this time. So 70 of my teammates got up and began to walk down the jet bridge. And I said, oh, that's pretty cool. This is a perk. And so I began to, as I began to shift and focus my attention on uh, being a person with a uh, quote-unquote disability, you know, I took my seat. I went down to the 14th row, and I realized, uh, and I saw my teammate coming on board. He's a, a, a basketball player, and he's a, he was a bilateral amputee. He is a bilateral amputee. And being bilateral, you know, had symmetrical being lost below the limbs, 
um, the, on the legs, you the, the person can be either as tall or short as they want to be, depending upon the legs they pick out in the morning. So when he got on the plane, he was actually six eight, and he's ducking underneath the exit sign. He stops at the seventh row, and he takes his artificial legs off, and he comes now. He's like four three, and his teammates, as he's in the seat, his teammates take his legs and place them in the overhead bin, and I'm just in awe of what's going on here because. You know, as, he, as his legs are off, I'm, like, trying to understand all this stuff. And I said, well, I, I think I get it. He's got more leg room. Uh, so that the, the um, uh, flight attendant comes in and asks him, is, is he okay? And he says, yes, I'm fine. You know, you know, go ahead and do what you need to do. I'm good here. And so as he goes off, his teammates then quickly take him, him now being four, three, and take him, place him in the overhead compartment of the, of the, of the overhead bin and close the bin door. And so the next person that comes on the plane that stops at that seat, who looks very important on the cell phone, has, a, has his rucksack and backpack on, he uh, doesn't have a, a place to place his rucksack underneath the, the, the uh, seat in front of him, so he must open the overhead bin. And I'm on the edge of my seat about to see what's going to happen. Hmm. And so as, uh, as, as all my other teammates, my 69 other teammates, are just kind of sitting there on the, on the plane like little church mice, like they've done this a thousand times before. And so here's my elevated self looking at this whole thing, going on with this with my new teammates here and when the man opens the overhead door the door swings open the man pops out and the and that guy goes flying all the way back to the fourth <laughs> row where i'm at <laughs> you know and i thought you know wow that that's just incredible and i told you know dude your, your seat's up there with that guy up there and so as he moves back up you know the guy says uh this bin is taken and and i'm just laughing hysterically mm. about what's what has just taken place and so who am I, shame on me, for thinking myself anything different because these, these individuals who I was now with, who are now part of this phenomenal community, um, just want to act in the same way and play the same type of practical jokes as we did when I was at the University of Arkansas, as I twice went to the Olympic trials, as I was, you know, in the, in the United States Army, you know, and some of the pranks you played in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, just living life and having fun. And that began to really move me and change my attitude about everybody. You know, I had these inhibitions about myself, but it helped grow me. I was the one really with the disability because I could not accept these individuals for who they were at that time. Mm -hmm. I love this community. That's such a healthy perspective. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking uh, before we started talking, you know, where do you get the, the will, the uh, the courage to keep going forward because I know many people and I may include myself every once in a while in that that group where you know throwing a pity party is very easy to do it's it's a comfortable place in some ways but it takes so much more to get out of that place and you know I live with a mantra that my dad um, quotes constantly where there's a will there's a way and so you know I've always been committed to finding the the way the will's always been there but but sometimes you know you fall into to a, a a pit was it your support group was it you know these these new experiences do you attribute those things to kind of bringing you out of what could have been you know a dark uh, under a dark cloud yeah that's that's great you know and i think that that all of us uh, have something in our lives that is going to challenge us and if nothing has challenged you out there you know just keep on living, and something is going to challenge you in, in a way. And I believe that helps our character, but it doesn't, it doesn't give us our character, right? So our character is actually revealed during our times of testing. When, so when we go into a trial, our character comes bubbling out, whether, whether it's a positive experience or a negative experience. 
And then after that, we, um, we can then learn from that, and it can help us the next time we face a situation like that. And so that's a great mantra that, that your, your dad has. I think when, because our, of our character is, is developed through a series of, of, of things that happen to us in our life and the things that we see and experience, um, that is what's going to – those positive things or negative things are, are going to be crucial for how long, I believe, it takes a person to recover from that, from a setback, whether it's a loss of a loved one, whether it is uh, a, a loss of, of a spouse because, you know, somebody goes through a divorce, whether it's the loss of a, of a, of a sibling, whether it's the loss of a job, any type of those things that, that challenge us in such a way that, that really gets to our, our core uh, are, are things that are revealed by our, our character before we actually get there. So it's very important to have something that's really strong and solid. And for me, uh, in my life, what I had was, was my faith, my faith in Christ. And that was what I held on to. Because I could, I could go back to a verse that says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Mm-hmm. you know, and I can say you, you're more than a conqueror through Christ uh, who, who, who loves us. So that, that was my anchor. That could really hold me to know that this thing that happened to me has happened for a reason. You just need to be able to, to hold on and walk through this path and see where God has taken you. And that was, that was the, the first thing. The second thing was, you know, when I was on, the, on that track um, and I was, my leg was looking all mangled and, and I knew I was not going to be running too, too, uh, any, any longer. Uh, it was just a, a horrific-looking accident. So the second thing I thought about was, was my wife. I said, get my, my family here and, and do the pain and everything. I said, I was able to articulate my telephone number to the, the paramedics and, my, and the Army staff that was there during this training accident that I had, um, and I was able to, you know, just, just get my wife. So the first thing was faith. The second thing was family. And the third thing was the friendships. The Army, uh, all-Army track and field team, they were around me, and, you know, they knew of, uh, of my faith because I was sharing it, you know, through Bible studies, to whomever would want to come. Want to come, want to come. And it was not like a, a total proselytizing. This was just like everyday life. This is how we just need to, to, to walk. And, and so um, because of that, the, the faith was being revealed during this time of testing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people knew that about me. So they, by the time the ambulance got there, we were singing songs, singing hymns. You know, I, was, I think I was singing the loudest because I was in so much, <laughs> so much pain. Uh, but those three things really were the, were the anchors. And, and I did this. It's not to say I didn't go through a grieving process, right? Uh, I did, and I, and I went through it, but it, it just was so fast that people think, well, you just jump from one thing to the next. That, that is so inspiring, John, and, you know, and it, it makes me think about, particularly as we approach the Olympic Games as, we're, as we are now, um, you know, a lot of these stories, a lot of inspiring stories come out of the, the backgrounds of, of the athletes uh, participating, and, you know, the, the one of the things that, that we talked about when you were in D.C. recently was the, the you know, the Paralympic Games. Uh, I know particularly the Summer Games are the second largest sporting event in the world next to the Olympics. And they've been around since, I think, 1960. And the first, uh, there was a wheelchair race in 1948 as part of the opening ceremony of, of those games. But all of these inspiring stories and, you know, and, 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 and the media attention that surrounds a Paralympic game pale in comparison to, to what's told during the Olympics. Why is this? Well, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it, it depends on what perspective we're, we're looking at that from. Uh, and what I mean by that is I, I think in the United States it's not as well known uh, because it's just, it's just um, 
it's, it's a nuance. We just don't know it. We're not used to seeing per- people with disabilities on television. And we, we, we in, in this country, we, we, uh, it, it's privatized. We, we sell uh, those television rights, right? So the, the Super Bowl, uh, if you want to get on television because the market is so great, you've got to pay, I think it's what, two million bucks for an ad now for a 30-second spot. So that is, that is tremendous value. When you're not known in this country, uh, you have to be able to, um, to, 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 to educate people first, and then, you know, the, the television will come. Uh, so what we have done at U.S. Paralympics, you know, under, under Charlie Hubner, the, the, our leadership chief of U.S. Paralympics, is we're branding U.S. Paralympics all across the United States, working with partner agencies in conjunction with those that are doing great programs for kids and youth and young adults with, with physical disabilities and visual impairments. Those kids are playing those sports and having the experiences of, um, of, their, of redefining their, their self-worth, their self-value, they're, they're, they're understanding, you know, the, um, how sports plays a huge impact as a platform to launch them in other areas. So they go on to college. They're, they're earning sports scholarships, uh, and that confidence is building them up to, you know, becoming doctors and, uh, and PhDs and, and master's degree holders and then going out into, and, and working a, a job. And so that's, that's one thing. But I think, you know, when we talk about going back to the question of, of the, the Paralympics on, on, on television, we do have some things. I think through NBC Universal. Uh, there's a, a web stream that comes out that, that's a feed, and I think there's going to be some more things that come out. So slowly and slowly, as we become more relevant in this country, we will see more and more athletes on television uh, with, with physical disabilities doing just what they do, uh, not, be, not celebrating because they have a disability, but celebrating because they're a great athlete first and foremost. And I think when you look around the world, uh, you see governments put on those, those television shows for, for them. So they buy the rights to the International Paralympic Committee's broadcast, and they just say, okay, this is a value in our country, and along with the Olympic Games, we're just going to show it on the Paralympic Games. So that their government actually buys that. Our government does not do that uh, for either the Olympics or the Paralympics. We don't take any government funding from the, uh, the Olympic Committee. Um, so that's the, that's the, I think that's the biggest thing, the biggest, biggest hurdle uh, when, it, when it comes to awareness and getting, getting on television here. You know, really, and you have to really think about it, if you don't know about it, will you actually watch it? I mean, there's a very closed audience, I think, right now of who actually will watch the Paralympic Games. Um, that is from my standpoint from, you know, I'm interested because I'm an athlete with inside of it. But if I really don't know what it is, I really, I, I don't know if I want to choose that programming over some, some, something else if I don't know exactly uh, what it is. Mm-hmm. So I think those are some of the, the reasons why, um, but I think we're moving, I know we're moving in a direction where there will be a lot more play for Paralympic Games on down the road. John, one of the things about the Paralympics is that it shows these disabled athletes or differently abled athletes in contexts that would surprise most people. Like, I was amazed to learn about judo and fencing as two of the events that are part of the Paralympics. Right. So with, with judo, judo is, is if you are visually impaired or totally blind, it is a sport that lends itself not only to the Paralympic side because of that, uh, that, that what they call disability, but it, it's also uh, we have a, 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 a judo, what you call them, judo players or a fighter, um, who is, totally, uh, is, is uh, partially blind. His name is Miles Porter, and he's vying for a spot on the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not that that's – I think that uh, the way I explain that is that um, – we, when, we, when I saw it for the first time, I was so encaptured by these athletes, and you know, me being one, 
about, you know, what it takes. I know what it took for us to be repeat champions at the University of Arkansas. Uh, but to have be repeat champions and have something that um, that challenges you, challenge you as well, it just ama- was amazing to me. Hey, John, in our closing minute here, uh, we're just on the verge of London. How much more has to be done to get ready for the Paralympic Games? I think for the U.S. team, you know, we are going through our trials right now. So all the teams are qualifying, and we are picking our team slowly and surely, just as the Olympics are right now, to put the best team forward. That is our mission, is to support our Olympic and Paralympic uh, team members or athletes to, to achieve sustained competitive excellence, inspire all Americans, and to promote the, uh, the Olympic, Olympic and Paralympic ideals. So as we move towards that, we are uh, then trying to use that platform as Paralympics uh, to, to really showcase uh, these athletes. So we're, we'll be out at Mount Sac Relays as, as they, were, they are running out there. We have a, 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 a below-knee amputee class that's running out there. We have an above-knee amputee class running at Ka- uh, Kansas Relays. Uh, so that's some track and field stuff that's happening. We have a swim meet that's going on right now, and swim championships will happen up in Montana, I believe, this year. So a lot of things are going on. Shooting's happening, and people are getting ready. They're getting qualified uh, to make this team and make this incredible journey overseas to, to go back really to the first place of Paralympics, which was in Stoke Mandeville, England. John Register, Associate Director of the U.S. Olympic Committee in the Paralympic Division and silver medalist as a long jumper in the 2000 Paralympic Games with a wonderful motivational story of hurtling adversity. We thank you for being with us today on World Footprints. Hey, thank you so much. J.F. Register is my Twitter account. Come follow me. Up next, it's On the Road in Search of History in California with Pomona College's Victor Silverman, author of California, On the Road Histories. And so I started doing research on California. I produced a film about San Francisco. I started writing things. And then I said, you know what, it's time for me to really get into it and uh, follow these stories that I knew little bits about. As the World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Asatui Sara. I am from Samoa. And I really love the World Footprints radio. And I love this family that talk to me like friends to me. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Don't have the time to give back to the community? No time to socialize or network? Then volunteer with OneBrick. Volunteer only when it fits your schedule and then join us for food, drinks, and great conversation afterward. It's a great way to meet new people, have fun, and help the community. Join us at www.onebrick.org. That's www.onebrick.org. One Brick. Volunteering made easy. Hi, I'm Alex from Baltimore, Maryland, and Tanya and Ian brought me to Baltimore by listening to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. 
Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Victor Silverman's career has spanned history, politics, theater, writing, and film. He is professor and chair of the history department at Pomona College, where he is also chair of the program in American Studies. Often quoted in the press for his expertise in politics and history, Professor Silverman is the author of many books and articles, including one we're going to talk about today, California on the Road Histories. Professor, welcome. Well, thanks. I'm really glad to be here. (laughs) I'm happy to have you, and I feel like I should address you as Professor just to show some deference, uh, but uh, happy to address you as Victor if you'd like. Oh, Victor is fine. Okay. It's an informal book, so I'll be an anonymous informal guy. (laughs) Okay. I just just want to say that the book is also co-authored with Laurie Glover um, from UC Davis, who's a a poet and essayist and contributed short kind of creative nonfiction pieces for the book. Right, and you know, and in looking at this book, and and of course, Laurie is mentioned on the on, on the cover. This is not a travel guide per se, but it takes a reader on a a different journey, a historical journey. That's right. It's it's, but well, it it is a travel guide in a, in a different kind of way than the usual travel guide in one sense. Um, we we do have some of the, you know notable things for people to see in California, both historical, but also um, Lori's essays are uh, about places uh, visitors to California might be really interested in going to, amazing kind of locations where history and the present overlap, and if you know enough about it, you can see it in front of you. And so the, the, the way the book is a travel book as well as a history book, is that it, it allows people who are coming to California or who would live in California to understand the place that they find themselves in and uh, the, the many overlapping histories uh, of the state. Now, what prompted you to write this book? Well, I, I'm originally from New York, and I moved to California quite, well, more years ago than I like to think. Um, <laughs> when, when I was in my late teens, and I fell in love with California so much, and and you know I, my my kids are Californians, my, so on, etc. And I, I knew little bits and pieces about this place, and I knew it was somehow different from where I came from, and it, it in well not just somehow, but in many ways, not just physically and environmentally, but culturally and socially, uh, it. it And as I became a historian, it wasn't really my field, California history. And so at one point I said, you know, I really need to understand California better. And so I started doing research on California. I produced a film about San Francisco. I started writing things. And then I said, you know what, it's time for me to really get into it and uh, follow these stories that I knew little bits about, whether it was Joaquin Murrieta, the, the bandit, or whether it was the, uh, the great migration of Okies into the Central Valley during the 1930s, or whether it was Cesar Chavez and the Black Panthers and the free speech movement, or even you know, Ronald Reagan and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. How did, how did these people come to be in this place and make it into what it was, this incredibly diverse complicated, contentious, messed up, but beautiful and amazing California. Mm-hmm. And so I started 
in on it. And, uh, and then at a certain point, I brought Laurie in to provide her perspective um, to kind of fill out the story with a different voice in the book. And so when you first started out, did you start out writing this book for your own edification, for your own benefit, or did you have an audience in mind uh, when you began writing? Well, I did both. I mean, it, yes, it was for my own uh, benefit, because I really I had a great time writing this book. It, it's a lot of fun, and, and I think readers will find it a lot of fun. But I also, as I wrote it, I had in mind that this was not an academic history. This is not your dry uh, textbook with lots of lists and tables and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's about stories of people's lives, about uh, big conflicts and drama and uh, strange little places and pe you know events that you might not have heard of, but that I think people really enjoy learning about and reading. Mm -hmm. Now, Victor, I have to say, you know, you covered a vast amount of territory, no pun intended, um, in this book. I mean, and it's very, it's packed rich with history, with culture, um, you know, lots of, of things that even I, as a former Californian, didn't, didn't know. But I'm wondering how you manage your research in the organization of this book, because I know how I write, and I'd have a floor or two rooms full of paper uh, had I done research for this. How did you manage all of this? Well, it, it, was, it was at times a little unmanageable, um, but uh, part of what uh, historians are trained to do is to take masses of information and figure out what the stories are within all the facts of the past and try and put them into a form that people can understand and, and enjoy. And so that was the challenge of doing the book, but it was also uh, the fun of it because, you know, like with the, it's, it's got tons of photographs and drawings and, and lithographs and things like that that we've reproduced in there, and it's a uh, very nicely produced, so you can really see the images. I, I used those as ways to all the images in the book as a way to help readers catch on to the different places and and, and remarkable things that I couldn't maybe put in the text. So mm -hmm. there might be a, a photo in there that I don't really talk about much in the text, but it's so that... <clears throat> um, it might have represented a, a few pages I had written and said, oh, I can't go into this in such detail. Let's just put a picture in. And it, it really is true that the picture is worth uh, a thousand or sometimes many thousand words. But in getting the book together, um, it was a long project, um, one of these projects that I thought, oh, I'll knock this off in a, in a year or two. And it ended up being about six years, I hate to say. Wow. And as I, you know, because I did other projects in between. I did a bunch of articles. I another film and, and it was like one of these things where it was a uh, it would go on the back burner then I'd pull it back off and and I came up with this manuscript that was like um, uh, you know you can imagine this big pile of papers that you know things are falling off it and they're hidden and you've lost them and you keep discovering things and so that's when I also asked Laurie to come in and help me out to try and put it into shape, and she's a really great editor, so we, uh, we work together on kind of taming the manuscript and turning it uh, into something a little more manageable, and, and so it, that was 
a good outcome of that process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you, the way you have this book organized, you really start from Californian birth or even before uh, the conception of, of California uh, ever happened through present day, and I think that's a very manageable way to um, to read and, and understand the growth of this this very large state. Um, I think it's you know very helpful for readers to to have it organized that way. That was purposeful. I'll, I'll take it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean the 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 idea is that there uh, the idea behind the book, if I can think kind of in in bigger terms for a second, is that there's not just one California. There's many Californians, and those many Californias have existed at different points in time. But there was also a point before there was California where it was a, a, a land of indigenous people who didn't really think about it as California. So the first part of the book is really how California came to be, how it came to, to be something of the place that it is. And the, the second part of the book is about how we grapple with both the legacies of the multiple conquests of California, the environmental transformation of the place, the, the many different kinds of people, the, uh, all the overlapping forces that made California into what it is, how those are now playing out over the last hundred years to bring us to the kind of mixed up place we are now, where at once we're, California is both uh, a, a great opportunity, incredibly diverse very successful in becoming more diverse and yet deeply riven. It has financial crises. It's uh, got one of the largest prison populations in the uh, country. It's, it's got a lot of problems, and yet it's also still an amazing place. And mm-hmm. How can those things be going on at the same time? And, and in a way, the book is hoping to answer those questions. What California uh, is and how it got to be what it is. Is there a particular period that you've researched that um, appeals to you more now that you've you've done your research? And, and I mean, it, do you have an affinity, excuse me, for a particular period in uh, California's history? Well, it, you know, I, I the hardest part of the book for me to write was the 19th century and, and pre conquest periods of California because it wasn't my specialty. I was really a 20th century person in in my research um, and in my previous publications. So for me, that that was the most fascinating part to learn about the incredible diversity of the Native societies in California, the the way that that Native people survived, uh, you know, just a terrible plagues that beset them, the violence, the, uh, the disasters that befell their societies, and yet that those people survived, that they preserved their culture, that they're still here in California. Those stories, I think, were just so powerful for me. Um, but, but at the same time, I, I, it's really hard for me to pick. I mean, there's so many cool stories, whether it's how the wine industry got started in California and the connections between the old Mexicans, uh, uh, leaders of California and immigrants who started California's wine business, which is so popular, or 
uh, how we've transformed the face of the state with huge water projects. We make California. We make rivers run up mountains and you know take water from one end of the state and put it in another end of the state. And uh, it, there's there's a great history there because uh, Mark Twain once said uh, that in California. Whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting over. That, uh, that story of water in California is really, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, to people not from a, a wet place, it seems like how could that be important or interesting? And, and yet it's some of the great stories of people trying to make their farms work in really tough conditions of you know, ambitious developers trying to create new cities out in the desert and the, the edge of um, the, their sense of civilization or of people trying to save the environment, of trying to uh, uh, you know, prevent the destruction of beautiful valleys up in the Sierra Nevada or to, to save Mono Lake. These kinds of stories are uh, just so compelling and so important for people who are interested in California, but who are interested in how our society operates. That I, I think that you know any reader coming to the book will really both it, it, you know enjoy reading it and come away from it with a greater sense of uh, of, of awe at what people have accomplished and what they've gone through, um, mm-hmm. and respect for. Uh, how we got to where we are is there um, is there anything that provided the the biggest surprise to you during the course of your research that you uncovered about California? Did you have any surprises? Uh, well, I mean, there were a lot of really fun, kind of remarkable, fortuitous things, like um, one of the stories that that Laurie writes about uh, is we we went to uh, there's a, a, a canal that brings water from Northern California to Southern California, and there's another one that brings water from uh, the high in the Sierra Mountains. If many people may have seen the movie Chinatown, that's talked about in the movie Chinatown that comes from the Owens Valley to Los Angeles, and there was a big fight over it. The farmers up in the Owens Valley dynamited the aqueduct a couple times, and there were big protests, and yet Los Angeles, you know, imposed its power over the the small um, rural farmers. And so we went looking for the place where these aqueducts meet uh, out in the high desert, way, you know, northeast of Los Angeles. And to discover this place where the, the, not just the canals and the aqueducts actually physically cross each other. There's like this weird engineering thing where they physically cross. Um, but right across them at the same time goes the John Muir Trail, the great envir- name for the great environmentalist. And that goes from the Mexican border all the way to Oregon. So you have this place, you, a place like that where the different histories of California, all the different stories, whether it's the native stories or the immigrant stories or the industrialization or the farms or the uh, labor conflicts or the, the, the political um, corruption stories, all those 
overlap in so many cool ways. Mm. So it sounds like an area that would offer a first-time visitor to California who wants a, an authentic experience about what California is, who the, I was going to say who she is, um, at her, her core. Um, it sounds like that would be an ideal place to, to start one's visit. Would you agree? I- I think so, and I hope readers will agree. It's a, uh, you know, when people come to California, they want to see Disneyland, they want to see the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, they want to see the Hollywood sign, they want to go to a beach, they maybe they go to Yosemite. Um, and, and all those places are marvelous places to visit, but there's so much more to California. And even to those places and how they got to be the the marvels that they are, how Yosemite got turned into a park is, is I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, you know, it's a, it's a remarkable story, and it's a story of people fighting in California to try and preserve the, the wilderness from uh, development and encroachment, and they're, they're not always successful, and, you know, why and why not is a really uh, a, a amazing story, or how the Golden Gate Bridge got built, and why it's uh, uh, you know how that accomplishment happened in the midst of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Another remarkable story. So w- when you get to these places to see them uh, and to learn about the things that obviously look beautiful or spectacular, like Yosemite, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge, um, having the history, you have a greater richness to your experience of the place. Um, wh- why California is so diverse? Why we have like. You know, 130 languages spoken in the LA school district. We have, you know, people from all over the world living here and have lived here for many, many years. Um, how it came to be is really remarkable. Mm-hmm. One, one last point about that: many people end up driving through the Central Valley of California, and it's boring, right? You get on I-5, you go from LA to San Francisco, or go up north, and it's flat, and there's nothing there. But if you know the history of that land, then even the boring, flat, dull parts come alive with the people who made it, the, the oil gusher that was there in the Central Valley that gushed for three years, spilling more oil on the ground of the Central Valley than the uh, recent oil spill in the Gulf. And it, it, you know, or, or the huge lake that you're driving through that's no longer there. Mm-hmm. These kinds of aspects of the history you can get through this book, and then when you're traveling in California, you can see the world that made the place that you're in now. Hopefully. Well, and you know, as a former Californian, I, I am greatly appreciative. Uh, the book is called California on the Road Histories uh, by author Victor Silverman and Lori Glover, and we will have a link to this book on Victor, your guest page, and also the show page. And I thank you very much for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Coming up, we'll take you on the front lines in the human trafficking fight with the UK's Ruth Dernley of Stop the Traffic. We are all about taking local action, building a global movement, and uh, taking part, driving campaigns for change. That's who we are. We are about grassroots. Next as World Footprints continues. I'm Lord Richard, and I'm from Northern Ireland, and I have uh, a record company 
uh, which produces New Orleans records, jazz records from the 1960s and early 70s uh, from New Orleans. And uh, I just love World Footprints. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. This is Rebecca Rothney with packforapurpose.org, and I love the meaningful travel that World Footprints inspires. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. As we at World Footprints continue in the fight against human trafficking, we want to introduce you to other organizations that are on the front line in this global war against humanity. We've become familiar with one such organization through our United Nations partner called Stop the Traffic, a UK-based initiative that under the leadership of its CEO, Ruth Dernley, is leading strategic responses to human trafficking worldwide, and we're very happy to introduce Ruth to you. Welcome to World Footprints, Ruth. Hi, it's great to be with you. We've been talking about human trafficking quite a bit, and some people have not yet grasped that human trafficking is a global epidemic. It affects every community. It affects every demographic, whether you're white or black, rich or poor, educated, non-educated. It impacts the global community. Yes, um, it's probably the uh, most important uh, truth that we need to get out at the moment. Because anybody uh, listening to this who's not heard of the word trafficking yet is either wondering what um, I'm doing organizing cars and congestion, or if they have heard about it, are still in their mind's eye got the image that it only happens in certain parts of the world. Um, you see, two, you know, 200 years ago, or just over now, um, when it was fought in the last generation, the trafficking, the buying and selling of people, um, that people were owned, that people were a property of another, that they could be moved around at whim and used um, for profit. That was seen as part of a certain type of uh, person. You know, it might have, be identified by the, by the color of their skin or mm -hmm. where they were from and what task they were used for. Um, but we're in, a different, we're in a different place now because the world um, knows one another, or so they think. You know, I can tap in uh, the name of somebody living in another place and, uh, on the other side of the world, and they can be my friend. They can be my friend on Facebook, even though I've never met them. Mm -hmm. um, I can find out all the facts, or so, as I think the facts, presented about uh, another place in another part of the world, even though I've never been there. 
we now live in a global community, but the problem is that community doesn't really operate with many rules. Right. Because the fastest growing crime in our world today is that of the buying and selling of people. And it is irrelevant what color your skin is, Mm -hmm. what country or source you're from, what age you are, how well educated you are, um, how much money you earn, what status you feel you have. How did you come to know about human trafficking? Because through my conversations with a number of people, um, people have actually taken action and they've really embraced this war against human trafficking after they heard about it. And some people may have heard about it when they were on holiday. Others through media organizations, hopefully like World Footprints, who continue to bring this issue to to the forefront of uh, audiences. But how did you become... Uh, involved and how did you hear about human trafficking in the first place? When I reflect back, um, I I was a, a I was a good student at school. I enjoyed school, um, and uh, I think what what we learned about it. Uh, I remember doing some lessons on slavery, um, and uh, you know I wrote about them in my essay. Then I, then I was a, a a law student at university, and uh, I did a course in in criminology. And uh, I remember at that time looking at um, the abuses of, of, of how, well, how individuals could be abused by, by another, but never heard the word trafficking. Hmm. And then um, over the years, I was working with a colleague uh, on something completely different, and probably about six years ago, um, we were sitting together, and uh, he, he just announced in a, an area of work that he was doing that it was coming up to the 200th anniversary uh, when we knew there would be quite a lot of noise around uh, the bicentennial uh, sort of celebrations when we were to remember the work of William Wilberforce amongst others or, uh, uh, who had fought hard, highlighting this issue but also uh, stopping the transatlantic uh, transport transatlantic transportation of of slaves. Um, We knew that was a moment when uh, people were going to be listening. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I, I knew about that. I knew that occasion. But never before had I then heard that this was a moment to raise a noise about the issue of what's going on now. And until that moment, from all my lessons I'd had in my history class or the, um, you know, my law degree awareness of uh, personal abuses and how human beings can subjugate one another and demand. I had never linked it to that. And so what intrigues me, and the reason I tell you that, is that I hadn't made those connections. And only about six or seven years ago when I started getting involved in this is we launched Stop the Traffic, a global campaign of community empowerment around the world. Only then did I start joining the dots. Only then did history become today's story. Only then did I start to realize the sheer scale of this. 
talk about some of the stakeholders that have become involved in this fight against human trafficking, some of the stakeholders that you've cultivated in this country, and I don't know how much you guys are doing doing this in the U.K. or, or elsewhere. We've actually tapped into the travel and hospitality communities. Are you doing the same? Because we think, you know, the travel community can play a very critical role in, in helping in this fight. Really important role. Um, stop the traffic. Uh, just to explain to people so you can see where that fits, we've developed a, a, a couple of very strong global partnerships. Um, we are all about taking local action, building a global movement, and uh, taking part, driving campaigns for change. That's who we are. We are about grassroots. Our uh, strategic partnerships are, as you uh, announced in the introduction, we uh, work very closely with um, United Nations, the United Nations uh, Global Initiative to Fight Trafficking, GIF, and then enforcement. We have a partnership with the Serious Organized Crime Agency that connects us across enforcement at a high level around the world. Um, Stop the traffic doesn't need and doesn't want to be um, the enforcers. Um, but we are clear that unless we work together and cooperate, government, enforcement, and community grassroots, we will not stop this. So we have cultivated a number of significant partnerships that Set the Traffic works with. Um, alongside many, many others, we have devised um, some key campaigns. And one of our campaigns is very much in the area of travel, safe travel, safe migration, um, uh, and, and, and engaging in hotels and um one of the key parts of the trafficking supply chain is that people get moved. Yes. Um, whether it's on a bus from one side of the town to another, one side of the region to another, whether it's in a taxi, um, whether it's on a train, getting off a plane, uh, moved by a car or a ship, it, it can be across the street or to the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. But that's how this money's made. So the transport and the travel industry has a huge role to play. So in the UK... Um, one of our local community groups that we call ACT groups, Active Communities Against Trafficking, they, they set up a few years ago an amazing group in the northwest of uh, England. And they came up with their own idea because they noticed that one of the uh, uh, sector of people who were highly likely through their relationship they had with their local police, uh, one of the sectors that would come into contact potentially with victims of this crime would be the taxi drivers in that great city. So what they did is they devised a taxi sticker and uh, just as a group. Hmm. And they liaised with us and talked about, uh, you know, what help we could give them. And they, because they were from that area, they got the local police uh, support and uh, they found the printing costs. Because that's what grassroots does. It resources itself. It thinks strategically. And then it made the relationship and went along. And the taxi drivers uh, agreed and put this into their cabs. And it was twofold. It was with a number on it that anyone sitting in that taxi being sent somewhere or taken somewhere could um, 
took that help and also in their awareness raising, educating for the taxi drivers. That's a fantastic local campaign. Yeah, that's a fantastic initiative and and one that that we thought of here. And and just the other week, which is why I wanted to say it's such a good news story, there were some successful prosecutions around some traffickers in that region because of precisely that campaign. Now, what's happened here is, um, interestingly, other people across both police have heard about this because Stop the Traffic is all about telling the story. And um, we've actually in, in uh, about to launch this um, for the Olympics across uh, um, uh, taxi drivers because uh, people within the government would like to promote this as well. They can see a good idea. Good. I was well, actually going to ask you about Parliament, if you've had any any support uh, from Parliament, and, and I'm glad to see that it seems that at least one level of the, the government is, is buying into this and supporting your uh, your efforts. Yeah, and I think what that story, I mean, what that, what that story tells us is that that's, that's what communities can do that no one else can do. You see, communities hold the power. That's where trafficking happens. It happens in the community. And so if communities come together in a way where they are keen, guided, supported, networked, they're aware that their local is connected to the global, mm-hmm. because you can't sever the two. Indeed. Um, because women and, 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 and victims of trafficking uh, of all ages and both sexes coming into that great city, they, weren't, they were coming from around the world. This, this is a global local campaign and so I just think it's a fantastic example of then how um, when you form really good partnerships, trusted ones where people realize um, that what you're doing is bearing fruit and good results, working well here in our context with the local uh, police and support, those ideas can Mm -hmm. grow from grassroots and be taken and made either national and now we've got others in Stop the Traffic around the world wanting to translate similar sorts of ideas into their town, into their region, and into a form of transport that would work for them. So it's just a great example. Right. And, and you're, I mean, I, I applaud the work that you're doing, Ruth, and certainly you have an open invitation to come back on the show. I know there's a number of of uh, questions that I have that we're not going to be able to, to get to uh, today and certainly more information you have to share. Um, but in the last 30 seconds, I do want to uh, give you an opportunity to talk to our global audience and give our global audience a call to action in the last 30 seconds we have here. The most important thing I want to say is, I, c- I could talk all day about step the traffic, the most important thing is what can you do? Um, so I'd encourage you, at first step, go to our website um, and find out those a number of campaigns, what's the one step that you could take today to make a difference? One thing, whether it's the chocolate you buy, or looking at a label, or just starting to get some indicators of what street you're in, what place you're in, different types of trafficking, opening your eyes, stopping what's around us. One small step together can stop the traffic. Absolutely. 
Ruth, thank you so much for the for the very important and good work you're doing. Ruth Dernley is the CEO of Stop the Traffic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you want more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, giving you the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're Tanya and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again real soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.